Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am sitting down today with Mr. Anish Carve. Anish is an entrepreneur and a computer scientist. And we've been exchanging notes on this piece you've just recently published. And as I was saying to you offline, I think it's very important for people to start to understand um, the computational limitations of central planning. So Anish, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. And it's fun to turn Twitter conversations into something that's closer to a real life conversation. I couldn't agree more. And I know we've been talking about this for some time. Um, and your piece really came together this week. And I think it's fantastic. I've already shared my, my thoughts with you on Twitter DM. I'm sure it'll come up in this conversation. Uh, I guess my question to you would be, where do we start? Do we just flow through this piece top to bottom? Or is there a certain overarching theme we should touch on first? I think we start with the goal. And the, the process of writing the article was really interesting for me in that I had an intuition in my guts for a long time that there was something mechanistic about bureaucracies. And when we use that word mechanistic, sometimes as computer scientists, we say that a process is algorithmic if there's a step-by-step -step procedure for producing an outcome. And I've been a, a long time casual reader of Thomas Sowell. I don't know if you can call Sowell casual reading, but I just think he's the greatest living economist. And Sowell makes this observation. He says, you will never understand bureaucracies until you realize that for bureaucracies, procedure is everything mm. and outcome is nothing. And that really got me thinking about the computational nature of bureaucracies. And I started to wonder if the limits of computer science could teach us about the limits of central planning. Mm. And that got me into Mises and the economic calculation problem. And here we are. So if you're game, economic calculation problem might be the place to start. Yeah, I completely agree. There's... And this is a, it's not even an analogy. Like it, it, it is what the free market is, right? It's a distributed computing system where each, as we'll get into, like each agent has the most salient knowledge about their local uh, environment, you know, to their space and time. The, presumably they have some degree of expertise or experience in what they're doing. And importantly, they have skin in the game. So yeah. it's like that model of distributed compute which is a free market of consciousnesses interconnected by a price signal, mm. or there's this centralized compute model called central planning or socialism, or um, I guess those would be the two terms we, we use there. I would say statism in general, right? The fact that you have even any semblance of central planning anywhere is inherent, inherently inferior to this model. And it, I mean, it's not just like, this is like a computer. It's like, this is very much, as you, as you quote in your piece, the network is the computer. So we're a bunch of meat bags with meat computers between our ears. Um, and we process information most efficiently when we are freely and voluntarily connected versus um, any mode of central planning that tries to compete with that decentralized compute model. That, that got me thinking about the Austrian process of Cadillacy. And mm -hmm. neither Hayek nor Mises liked the term 
economy because they thought it implied household management. Mm. And the process they were really interested in was the process by which prices and exchange ratios are computed. Mm. And the observation that Mises makes about the market is that the market is not a place or a thing. It is a process. Mm. It is something that happens. And so the big distinction here, I think, is between the organic and the mechanical. And the free market process has this organic nature to it. And, and one of the things I go into is this phenomenon of flocking or the murmuration of starlings. And here you have hundreds, thousands, even millions of birds have been reported to be in these murmurations. And for those of you who haven't seen it, I totally encourage you to just Google murmuration and look at how beautiful you see these clouds of birds, thousands and thousands of birds. Now, here's the thing. The confusion throughout history about the invisible hand has been, and the objection has always been, how can this work? How can it be that everyone pursuing their own selfish ends can lead to some globally rational, globally optimal outcome? Mm -hmm. And when we look to nature or even computer simulation, a murmuration simulation, we see that these are literal bird brains. They have very limited awareness. They just know what's around them. And a friend and colleague of mine, Craig Reynolds, actually showed, he developed something called voids. It's, it's a play. It's like how somebody in, in New Jersey would say birds, right? Mm -hmm. And he showed that with just three simple rules, and they, they are, are steering. So you, they're steering alignment and cohesion. And you basically don't crash into your neighbors. You steer towards the center of your neighboring flock, and you try to head in a common direction. So all of that to say, Birds, these birds, these starlings have no consciousness. There's no conductor. There's no single starling saying, you go over here, you go over here. That would, they would all die <laughs> very quickly. Right? And so the idea is that a distributed process takes into account more information than any centralized process possibly could because of a phenomenon that Hayek calls the man on the spot. So he wrote it really famous and short a lot ago. A lot of Austrian works are long and difficult. We'll, we'll get to those. But Hayek wrote the use of information or the use of knowledge in society. Mm -hmm. And he develops this concept of the man on the spot. And he said, there are so many things that an individual knows about their daily course of life that cannot be computed because they're, excuse me, not computed, communicated. They're implicit forms of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge cannot be made explicit so that a central planner can then orchestrate all of those things that the individual is doing for him or herself. One more thought, and then I'm going to pause and let you jump in and see where you want to take it. But the key distinction in Hayek's work, and Hayek and Mises are different, right? So and, and in some sense, Mises was a harder form of Hayek in that Mises drew a much clearer and sharper line about why socialist economies don't work. So Hayek makes an information argument, and Mises makes a calculation argument. Mm -hmm. Hayek presents the idea that, well, economic calculation is difficult because a central planner cannot acquire all the knowledge. Mises makes an impossibility argument, and he mm -hmm. says that socialist or centralized command economies cannot perform cataloxy. They cannot compute market prices and exchange ratios because there's no way to turn the individual subjective preferences, which he calls ordinal numbers, and we'll talk mm -hmm. about this in a second, into cardinal numbers or market prices. And so they have two, two different approaches. One is an information theoretic approach, and the other is kind of a, an impossibility theorem, if mm -hmm. you will. And that's where I really got compute, computing and computer science is a lot about what is knowable and what is computable. And that's where I got really excited that, hey, wait a minute, what Turing was trying to tell us and what Mises were trying to tell us are actually related. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm, I'm reminded here of 
uh, Taleb actually, where he talks about human beings having this proclivity to mistake the cat for the washing machine <laughs> that we've, you know, clearly mechanical technologies that have very deterministic patterns, right? We know in a washing machine, if a certain gear breaks, the entire performance of the machine breaks, you replace the gear, you fix the machine. Much more difficult to do that on the cat, right? The cat starts having an issue. Uh, you can't just replace a part and get the, get the cat working again. And the line there being this, you know, mm. between organic and inorganic or uh, mecha mechanistic versus complex system. Um, it's every time we intervene into complex systems, it seems like we create some externality or unintended consequence. That's almost the only certainty of intervention <laughs> into complex systems. Um, but something about the 20th century I guess as a product of the industrial age thinking, we actually viewed the economy as something that's mechanistic. You know, a lot of this is led by Keynes. You just, you know, general theory of um, interest and credit, I think was his, his big work, which as I think you point out in your piece has a lot of physics envy, right? Trying to right. Uh, reflect the general theories that Einstein put forth, but this idea that you can just sit in an ivory tower and move certain levers and press certain buttons and uh, induce human action. Like that right. seems to be the core misconception of reality. Um, and it, you know, moves us away from this Pareto optimum that the free market produces. Like it's just people expressing their wishes through buying and selling uh, so long as there's not intervention into that process that the market configures itself to those wishes. But when, when there's an intervention, right, there's some threat of coercion or violence or property violation or price distortion, the whole thing is thrown into disarray. Um, and I just, just one more, I'll read one excerpt here where you're just quoting Mises. This is one of, I think, the most beautifully written and profound things I've ever read from Mises is like, the market is not a place, a thing, or a collective entity. The market is a process actuated by the interplay of the actions of the various individuals cooperating under the division of labor. Sounds kind of esoteric if you're not mired in the Austrian literature, but that contains like the whole thing, right? It's about individuals freely cooperating in their own self-interest uh, creating this division of labor that benefits everyone. Yeah, you you touched on, you stated without stating the fatal conceit. And, and what I wanted to address in your comment there was this idea of chronocentrism. So mm -hmm. because we have so much progress in data and in technology and our ability to shape the natural world, the fatal conceit is a very natural thing to fall into. You start mm -hmm. to think, well, we can control, we can send, a group of astronauts to the moon, therefore we must be able to provide abundance for everyone on earth. Mm -hmm. So it's a very natural, and the reason I bring up chronocentrism is, Sol makes this point that it is generally the most intelligent and intellectual people who are attracted to socialism because they believe in the power of the intellect. Mm -hmm. And so the fatal conceit of Hayek in one sentence is, it is the belief that everywhere there is order, it came from conscious design. Mm -hmm. And he traces this all the way back to Aristotle and a phenomenon that Aristotle called taxis, which is the arrangement of words. Hmm. 
And the utterly false and injurious to society idea is that, well, the only way we're going to have order is if someone arranges it. And we begin to see the counterexamples to this, not just in the free market, but in the murmuration of starlings, right? There's, there's no order that's planned. And now there's something so beautiful, which takes us right to praxeology. And it is, you can have a deterministic process. So we show in a Boyd simulation that, hey, this looks just like murmuration. It's a deterministic process, but the outcome is totally unknown. So the paradox is that there's a very simple deterministic set of rules that generate this extraordinarily complex behavior, but it's not so complex that it's chaotic. Everybody can look at a memoration and say, that is a memoration of starlings, but mm -hmm. no two memorations are alike. Mm -hmm. And this is where praxeology starts is that, hey, we're not going to use the scientific method. So Mises wholly rejects positivist empiricism. And remember the idea there, and this again goes to this chronocentrism, this arrogance of science, that yeah. it's only real if we can prove it and reproduce it in a laboratory. Mm. Mises goes 180 degrees, a complete other direction, the epistemological dual of the scientific method. He says, first of all, we do not require facts to prove anything about economics. Mm -hmm. And he says, nobody disagrees on facts. What people disagree on is the interpretation of those facts. Mm -hmm. So praxeology focuses on providing a model that starts with very simple rules, the most important of which is the axiom of action. Mm -hmm. And starting with the axiom of action, starting with certainty, Mises deduces truths about the whole of society. And I, I want to talk about that word. But it is in this spirit very much like a Lorenz attractor or a Boyd simulation. Mm -hmm. There are very, very simple rules, but they produce these extraordinarily complex, not unstructured, but extraordinarily complex holes. And, and one more kind of really interesting thing, you, you mentioned that it seems like every time we intervene in a complex system, there's a side effect. Mm -hmm. And that is the word, complected is actually a word. And so a system that is complex has numerous interrelationships. And that's why you don't just change a part on a cat because every single cell has a communication network to every single other cell. It's not quite that simple, mm -hmm. but the intertwingularity, this is Ted Nelson's word. You can imagine if you have a deep, a thousand year old ball of yarn that's been touched by a million people and contributed to by a billion people. You can imagine if I pull on one red thread, man, that is gonna affect some blue thread a million miles away. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little bit for the intuition of complex systems. And it is also how the invisible hand can generate action at a distance. And people, Mises specifically says this, he says, letting market forces operate does not mean let soulless mechanical forces prevail. Mm -hmm. What it means is to allow human action to compute prices and to compute the distribution instead of, and this is the killer blow. What Mises says is whenever socialists speak of order and organization, what they actually mean is they're going to come in and dictatorially replace the preferences of the consumers mm -hmm. with their own arbitrary and I'll show algorithmic plans. So there's no such thing. You know, this is the other big straw man is that people say, well, if we don't have central planning, we'll have chaos. First of all, bollocks. Mm -hmm. And every, every living system is evidence of this, not only living system, but living communities. Second of all, the order that you can attain through planning is a proper subset of the order that you can attain through, through distributed computation and free will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many good points there. Um, I think what Hayek refers to this, something as like, uh, 
without, I think he says order without conscious planning. Maybe they always refer to conscious direction as the central planning extended order, extended order. Right. And we know that, I mean, like it's somewhat intuitive if you are an observer of natural systems, right. To even see like an ant colony and how it functions, right. Every little ant has just a small set of deterministic rules that they're following yet it emerged it's the most i think ants are the most biomass on earth at least ab- above sea level um probably not below sea level but above sea level so not more than bacteria but maybe like in the insect kingdom yeah Possibly. yeah in the insect or animal kingdom i suppose it's uh this idea that you t- can take very simple rules and have you know almost incomprehensible emergent complexity but not chaotic to your point like it's structured uh, so, so it's fractal almost, right? It's self-similar at different scales, mm. but it's arising from very simple rules. Um, is it safe or is it proper to say then that praxeology, because we're deriving and deducing uh, these theorems from axioms, it's somewhat like what math is to objectivity, praxeology is to subjectivity, something to that effect, because mm-hmm. the only other rationalistic um body of knowledge that i'm aware of is it is mathematics right which is the most powerful most potent tool humans have yeah and by the way the potency is what gets us into trouble because mm-hmm. people say our mathematics is so good our model has 99 accuracy and it works spectacularly <laughs> until it explodes spectacularly right and garbage in and garbage in fact, out long-term capital management is that this is a six sigma event right so just mm-hmm. quick Backstory, multiple Nobel Prize winners, they form long-term capital management. I'm sure you've talked about it on the show Mm. before. And they have kind of an arbitraging system. They describe it as a vacuum cleaner picking up pennies all around the world. And it's based on Gaussian statistic standard deviations. And an event happens, which almost wipes them out. And that event is, according to their model, six standard deviations from the mean. Okay, so this should never happen. So they said, guys, we're geniuses. This model is correct. This will never happen again. And it does. And the, the Fed has to hold, the New York Fed has to ultimately bail these guys out, right? And they, they go completely belly up. Mm-hmm. So, so all of that to say, there is this phenomenon of math washing where people think that if they attach mathematics to something, and this is why Mises, Mises is absolutely ruthless on quantitative economics. They think that if they attach math to something, it, it suddenly becomes true. And Keynes is certainly guilty of that. And that's what physics envy is. Mm-hmm. Physics envy is not a whitewash. It's a math wash. It's like, yeah. hey, and basically the, the natural sciences were producing spectacular results. Let me say the hard sciences, physics, chemistry. Mm-hmm. And then the economists and social scientists of the world have to justify their existence and their tenure. And like, wait a minute, we need the scientific method. And, and mm-hmm. Mises says, bollocks, the scientific method cannot possibly apply to human beings. One of the reasons is that there's no such thing as a controlled experiment in the world of economics because there are billions of variables. And so much of the knowledge is totally hidden. We can't even measure these things. And this economic calculation problem, which is really, I think, to me, it's Mises' crowning achievement. Mm -hmm. And I should say that economic calculation, Mises essentially calls economic calculation the core matter in all of economics. When we talk about matters of economics, we're talking about economic calculation. Mm -hmm. And very briefly, economic calculations are the systems of judgments, not even a system, are the judgments that individuals use to choose the optimal next course of action. Mm -hmm. And that requires a common denominator, which Mises says is money. Mm -hmm. 
And I guess now we've somehow stumbled into the real, real core of the piece, the gem at the core of the piece. What Mises effectively says is that a planned economy, a centrally planned economy cannot perform catalogs. It cannot compute the prices and the exchange ratios. Mm. And I'll, I'll just pause there because that, that starts to take us in, into Turing and some of the other interesting things. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, I would just add that, you know, with praxeology, the other key point here, just for common people to understand, because it, it feels like it runs very contrary to our traditional scientific worldview. Like, what do you mean? You're not going to run experiments and verify and tell me what's true. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, it just flies in the face of all traditional scientific thought. At least for me, it did at first. But the other point here that, that Mises makes is there's just no constants in human action, right? Like we could say, you know, water has certain phase transitions at certain temperatures. That's pretty uh, reliable, uh, constant data point you can you can use in physics and whatnot, but that does not exist in the scope of human action, right? People are unpredictable, I guess, right? We're each a complex system and we're in, engaged together in a complex system. Um, the other thing here is economic calculation, somewhat of an obscure term, but it I like to think of it as the language of markets ultimately, like is we're converting these exchange ratios into a useful, actionable data point um, the price, right. And, and that's effectively what you're doing with language is you're, you're, you're converting this, these ratios of meaning into grammar and syntax in a way that like projects information from one actor to another. So right. it's very important. Like you can't in the same way, you couldn't have a functional group of humans without language. You can't have a functional marketplace without economic calculation. It's just, it's not like it doesn't work well. It just doesn't work at all. Um, it, it's not even you can't have a marketplace. So I guess Mises sets two prerequisites for economic calculation. One is the market. The second is the medium of exchange. You cannot have society as we know it. Right. And just to clean up, I think a little, this is going to be interesting. This conversation is going to be complex in, in its own mm -hmm. right. But one of the things we left dangling is why did Hayek feel the need to create this, this new term, the extended order. And mm -hmm. this is so interesting. It's because in the fatal conceit, he outright refused to use the words society and social. Mm. And this is extraordinarily significant because we already know that fiat currency can be debased. Mm -hmm. Marx, and it's Mises who first makes this observation. Of course, Hayek is as Mises is most brilliant and in some sense, most disappointing student. Mises says that, that Marx was only able to perform his intellectual sleight of hand and pretend that society was the solution to all of our problems by using three full-blown different definitions of society simultaneously. Mm -hmm. He uses an abstract definition, a concrete definition, an intermediate definition, all interchangeably. Now watch this. And then, so for everything good that the government does, he calls that society, first sleight of hand. The second one, everything bad the government does, he calls the state and blames on capitalists. And this is what Mises says, is that this is how socialists and authoritarians proceed to reason. They call everything that they don't like capitalism and then proceed to reason that capitalism is bad. So the debasement of the term society by Marx is why Hayek said, I'm not going to use that word. And it is also used as an intellectual camouflage. For instance, the concept of social justice. Mm 
The reason people append the word social to justice is to co-opt the meaning of justice. That's mm-hmm. because nobody wants or needs anything more than justice. Was there something wrong with the original definition of justice that we can't all be treated equally and get what we want? Absolutely not. You put social in front of the word justice when you want to co-opt the meaning of that term. Mm. And so Hayek invents this concept, the extended order, to express this process by which all of this dispersed knowledge gets integrated and becomes the order of society. As you pointed out, one of the incredibly important things is, let's let's zoom out for a second. We know that the scientific method requires controlled experiments. Mm -hmm. Praxeology has their own method. They start with the axioms of human action and they, they create what are called imaginary constructs. So the same way that a scientist performs an experiment in the physical world, the praxeologist performs experiments in their mind. Mm-hmm. They perform experiments in their mind. And that was what why Hayek set out to say, I'm going to call this the extended order and the process by which order is generated. So I don't use this debased term called society. Mm-hmm. And then one more loose thread about we, we almost need a secretary to kind of keep, keep track of all these topics where Austrian economics and the theory of computation come together are at formal systems. Mm. So a formal system is where you start with axioms and you produce theorems according to rules. And that's mm. true for both computation and Austrianism. Uh, I'm not saying, and I'm very careful about this, that the theory of computation applies to human beings. I'm not saying that at all. Mm. I'm saying that the theory of computation is a beautiful set of known imaginary constructs that can teach us what is true about reality and that the process of central planning is algorithmic and has computational limits. Why is it algorithmic? Because bureaucracies are all about procedure. They're Mm -hmm. all about syntax. They don't understand anything about semantics or intention. And Sowell explains this really well. He says, the first law of economics is scarcity. There will never be enough to satisfy everyone's demands. But the first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics. <laughs> and, and so the, the socialist system starts in some sense with a break in reality, but it's very seductive and sounds very good of mm-hmm. all these familial and kind things that we should do for our fellow man, but ends up in, in actually the, the collapse of cataloxy, the collapse of the market. And one or both of destitution, there's not enough, or there's waste, overproduction. Mm-hmm. Why? Because in a socialist regime, there's no exchange, there's no market, there's only an internal transfer of goods. And this is what means when there's no ownership, when there's only shared ownership, if I'm a socialist manager and I want to solve a problem, let's say I want to deliver water to a city. I just, I, I don't have prices. I just say like, hey, my bureaucracy should get these resources. Mm-hmm. And, and Mises gives this beautiful example of economic calculation. I, I hope you'll indulge me. He says, well, you have this choice. Now, there are basically three ways to provide water to a city. He says, number one, you could purify the water that you have. Number two, you could do what the Romans did and you could import the water with aqueducts or modern plumbing. Number three, you could synthesize the water from hydrogen and oxygen. And now people, and he, he says this specifically, now people scoff at the third idea. The only reason we know the third idea is ridiculous is because we have a market that tells us that that would be a prohibitively expensive way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that the USSR and Cuba and so many of these other socialist economies didn't collapse sooner 
is that they could look over their shoulder and copy prices, copy information from mm. the free market and from the capital system. If they didn't have that, it's like a glass of ice, ice water in hell. If they didn't have that glass of ice water to radiate that little bit of coolness out to them, their, their systems would have collapsed instantly. Right. And Mises makes that point so that all they're doing is, is copying. And we should talk about market socialism in a second. But, but I feel like that got us to a good place. We didn't, we didn't quite yet develop this idea of, of subjective personal value and how that becomes objective. Yeah. But I want to pause there and let you jump in. Yeah, no, it's very good points. Um, I guess what is key here is this, this fundamental reality that compassion does not scale up to the societal level. And this seems to be something that the socialist um, jargon and rhetoric really preys on, right? Again, he's sort of inserting society hmm. as like this ephemeral collective body that gets all the all the praise for things that go right, but then anything that doesn't go right, he calls the state or I guess capitalist, right. as you said. Um, but you're, it's almost like you're preying on this biological notion that we all have, like it, in our community or our family, or our small circle of trust, like, sure, I'll give you something or loan you money or give you a sandwich or the shirt off my back. Like we have this natural um, generosity within our small circles of trust, but that does not scale up to a global society, right? What the further Taleb describes this as the scale variance, right? Where he says, I'm, I'm a total socialist in my family at the family level. And then at the national right. level, I'm a pure capitalist because you don't have those same warm feelings and bonds with people that are, you know, thousands of miles away that presumably for the bureaucrat, they're just rows on a spreadsheet, right? They're not your neighbors right. or your friends. Right. So um, that's really important. And it, you know, the, even that Marxist notion of from each according to their ability to each according to their need, like that's preying on it directly, right? It sounds beautiful, something we can all rally behind, but it computationally, pragmatically does not scale at all. Um, I'd like to maybe throw kind of a question in here too. Another way I've described this difference between centralized, the centralized computing model of socialism, the decentralized computing model of pure or true capitalism, is there a way to actually quantify this? Because I know that like the human conscious attention span, I think is 120 bits per second. So there's some number. Yeah. I may be wrong on the number, but there is a number. No, that, that's the number. And then you could then quantify like, okay, a market, a distributed computing market could then take in number of participants times that number oh, would, oh, be its, would be its data throughput versus the central compute model would be, you know, the, the governors of the bureaucratic body overseeing the whole population. They, they would have a much more constricted flow of data. So is that a proper way to frame this that, you know, you just have more data throughput in a decentralized model and that's why it outcompetes uh, centralized? This is certainly the Hayekian argument, and Murray Rothbard takes Hayek to task for, for turning the economic, economic calculation problem from impossible, in Mises' words, to merely difficult. Mm -hmm. And where you were going, and like, you know, so Hayek kind of moved the goalpost in some sense, or he said, well, you would have to solve these difficult equations, these difficult differential equations. And then Oscar Langa, who, uh, we should back up and explain this, Langa developed this idea of, of market socialism. And so, first of all, the economic calculation problem dropped like a bomb 
when when Mises first explained it. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, the socialists stopped and said, oh boy, that's an issue. That's a problem. So they then proceeded to say, well, I mean, this is an extraordinary admission in some sense. They then proceeded to say, well, we're going to try something called market socialism. Mm -hmm. And they started waving their hands and said, you know what capitalists do? They guess. They discover prices by trial and error. So here's what we're going to do. All of the socialist managers will enter some kind of auction or some kind of guessing prices, and they'll just try through trial and error, they'll try different prices and will ultimately discover the right price. And that's called mm -hmm. market socialism. And then that became a subject of a series of, of certain mathematical equations. And Hayek and his co-author said, well, you have to be able to solve these equations. Mm -hmm. And then 20 years later, and not long before he died, Longa said, well, guess what, guys? I've got a computer. And this is why Rothbard said, hey, this is you took something that was impossible, economic calculation, and made it about throughput, which, which was your question. Mm -hmm. So there certainly is the case that the man on the spot has information that the central planner doesn't have. Mm -hmm. But the economic calculation problem is really, in Mises' language, is about something that is physically impossible. There's no way to come up with prices and exchange ratios. And I think the, the, the great way to show that is, is so beautiful to me as somebody who's trained in mathematics. Mises makes the distinction between ordinal and cardinal numbers. Mm -hmm. And ordinal numbers tell us the relative order of things. So, so for, for example, if I want to go, if I'm trying to decide where to go for vacation, and I, I'm like between San Francisco and New York, I have an ordinal preference in my mind. San Francisco is number one, New York is number two. However, I have no way of communicating this to another human mm -hmm. being. And I have no way of evaluating which of those two preferences is going to satisfy my needs with the resources that I have available. So again, ordinal numbers are just expressing relative preferences and they're purely implicit to the individual. So Mises takes a very hard line. He says values are pure, are a purely subjective and intensive phenomenon. The individuals hold them close to their chest. There's no way for them to, to communicate that information. Mm -hmm. And this is the distinction between value and price. Value, is an ordinal. It's like, ah, oh, what do I prefer? I prefer oranges or blueberries or first, steak, second, this third. Or that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Exactly. First, second, third. Thank you. That's a much clearer way of saying ordinals. And cardinals are prices. This costs two bucks. This costs five bucks. This costs six bucks. Prices aren't the only cardinals, but cardinals tell us how much. Mm -hmm. And so the economic calculation problem that socialist economies cannot solve is this elevation of ordinals into cardinals. Mm -hmm. And so when I have a, an army, of market participants, all of whom have their own individual and subjective preferences. How do I fairly reconcile all those ordinals into a way that people who exchange, and that is a fundamental axiom of praxeology, into a way that people who exchange can communicate, this is the killer, with a common denominator. Mm -hmm. So there cannot be economic calculation without a common denominator. That common denominator is money, and the units of the economy are denominated in prices and there's no such thing as price right. in the extreme form of socialism. In Marxism, there's no even such thing as capital. How can you think of economic calculation in a system where there's no, no capital? I don't know if we departed from the original subject, but that felt like a really important, important. <laughs> no, no, it's an excellent point. I'll read an excerpt here to, to back it up. You wrote that computation, like economic calculation, makes no thought, indeed cannot think, about the moral content of its programs but is merely a means to human ends. So it's, it's computation is just amoral, right? It's just, you know, you're inputting data, it's crunching the data and outputting something. And then you're quoting someone here, I'm not sure who, oh, this is Mises. Computation demands units, 
And there can be no unit of subjective use value of commodities, because as you said, it's ordinal, right? It's first, second, third. You can't do, it doesn't make any sense to say what percentage of second is the, of first, right? You can't right. have like, uh, this is my best friend and this is my 78% second best friend. Like it doesn't make sense. It's just ordinal, not cardinal. Uh, Mises goes on to write, marginal utility provides no unit of value. Judgments of value do not measure. They arrange and they grade. So there's something really special about the pricing system that's converting these internally, personally held hierarchies of preference or value into something objective, right? The market price. So it's assimilating all of these intersubjective wants and compressing it really into a single actionable piece of data called the price. Hugely important. And that is why it was very hard for me to accept as a computer scientist that a single number can convey so much information. Mm. But it's the density of computation and human action behind that number that makes it powerful. Mm -hmm. And it was Carl Menger made Mises' work possible in two ways. So first of all, he invented marginal utility, and we can talk about the mm -hmm. diamond water paradox. He invented marginal utility, and he also showed that the concept of marginal utility applies to higher order goods. So it isn't just the first order goods we purchase in the marketplace. It's not just the finished goods or the consumer goods. They're all these capital goods. And in the article, I talk about a famous, it's a very, very short, maybe two pages. Leonard Reed, I believe is the author. It's called iPencil. And mm -hmm. he goes to show that to make the lacquer, to make the rubber, to make the ferrule, that little metal piece, you need dozens of countries, all kinds of technology, all kinds of know-how to make something as simple as a pencil. And so the price is so information dense because the participation of so many, the, the economic calculation for first order goods and for capital goods together goes all together to form that price. And that's why the price is so information dense, mm -hmm. so to speak. And it has this organizing function, you know, in chemistry, a crystal has to have a seed. Mm -hmm. So you can have, a, 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 for example, uh, like if you have a super saturated solution, so it's, it's full of salt or sodium. But it's not until you drop a nucleus in there that the rest of the crystal can start to form around that. Mm. And that is really why Cadillacy has such a powerful and information conveying process. And this is, again, very much why the USSR was able to, to do some economic calculation. They could just crib. It's like, like looking over at the, the, <laughs> the person next to you and say, oh, well, what is that value? Okay, it's roughly worth this. And that gave them some structure by which they could do a little bit of economic calculation and they stood afloat longer, longer mm. than they would have. Quick anecdote there. And oh, I, I want to push back on one thing, which is I don't think it's that compassion doesn't scale. I am a capitalist because I'm compassionate. The mm -hmm. only compassionate economic system is one that doesn't lead to starvation and violation of personal mm -hmm. rights, right? And we can talk about that in, in the context of the road to serfdom. But what doesn't scale is the fungibility of humans. That is one of the big mistakes mm -hmm. of Marx, right? Which is to say, from an ordinal perspective, I, as a human being, will always have preference for the people in my family, and it is folly to say otherwise. In other mm -hmm. words, the needs of my own mother, all other things being equal, or ceteris paribus, as mm -hmm. Mises likes to say, I cannot prefer or treat as equal a homeless woman in another country, right? And so the mistake that Marx makes is that human beings are fungible one with another, and mm -hmm. that that allows us, this is the killer word, and this is so much deviltry happens around this world. That's a very strong characterization of the word equality, mm -hmm. right? And 
you know, that, that is, is the mistaken trope. No, human beings aren't equal to themselves on different days. First, you, you know, soul makes this observation. So you, you, an hour later with food or without food might be totally unequal to yourself. And even in the Pareto distribution, I think one of the things Taleb talks about is the, the, the upper 1% are more different than one another than they are from us, than we are from them, right? So this scale-free feature, inequality is not the problem. It's standard of living that's the problem. And they've completely moved that debate. And I'll even go so far as to say that inequality is a great thing. The mm -hmm. reason we have inequality is because wealth is accelerated. And the only way that we can lift millions of people out of poverty, and by the way, capitalism alone is the only economic mm. system that shows that property of creating wealth over time. The mm. number of people above the poverty line right now is, is, is unprecedented in history, mm. in spite of all the socialist central planning that we have. But the accelerating effect of wealth that it creates inequality is precisely what we want. Mm -hmm. That's what allows for mobility amongst the economic classes. And another sleight of hand that they engage in with solo shows is that the top 1% or 10%, whoever you want to demonize, they, that's not a fixed quantity. People go in, right. in and out right. of the upper. So it's not even like, you know, the upper 10% are, are equal to themselves. So again, the important thing there is not inequality. Inequality can be very good if it's demonstrating the accelerating effects of wealth. The mm -hmm. fact that a poor immigrant can become a billionaire is the reason and the only reason that capitalism can lift people out of poverty. So uh, all of that to say, Marx pretends that people are equal one to another. In mm. spiritual value, in the eyes of the law, equal 100%. In capability, absolutely not. Right. And that is one of the reasons why the labor theory of value falls flatly on its face. One person may take an hour to dig a dish. Another person may make may take 10 hours to dig that same ditch. Mm. It's absurd. People are so different from one another. And by the way, this is one of the axioms of praxeology that humans mm. are diverse. Yeah, there's a lot there. So first of all, the, the eye pencil thing, it's a beautiful essay. If anyone has not read it, um, I think it is probably the best description of the value of the division of labor I've ever read. Um, and, you know, Matt Ridley in his book, The Rational Optimist, opens with a similar anecdote on the computer mouse, how there's no one on earth that knows how to make a computer mouse. There's no one. There's no single person, no single group. We are engaged and only because we are engaged in this process of the division of labor or distributed computing in the free market, distributed mental computing in the free market, that we are able to create wealth. We're able to create these sophisticated production yes. structures that that move what you're describing moving the standard of living needle right it's like inequality shouldn't even be discussed almost because inequality is the reason the division of labor works if we were all the same and capable of the same things and we're just homogenous blobs then there would I guess there's still a division of labor but it wouldn't be as uh, accelerative to wealth as you're describing so, and, and this is reflected in like the poorest people in the world today are still more wealthy than the richest people a few hundred years ago, right? In terms of their access to healthcare or food. Running water. Running water. I mean, to take a really simple example, electricity. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So it's, the, yeah, it's the wrong focus to focus on inequality and, it, and to try to make people equal is just to go against what is people are not equal we are all different it is capitalism's taking advantage of that diversity and embracing the reality of it to make us to improve the standard of living 
Whereas it seems like socialism is kind of geared towards the reverse. It's like, no, we need to all equalize everyone. Well, the only right. place people are equal is in the grave, ultimately. And that sounds like uh, a bit of deviltry, as you describe. But if you look at the history of Marxism and socialism, that's largely what happened. A lot of people did end up equal in the grave. Um, I want to ask, so you described wealth as accelerative. Could you just unpack that a little bit? I'm writing a piece on wealth right now. And I'm trying to get my head around, you know, I like these simple questions that end up, put you in a rabbit hole. The, the latest one is what is wealth? So yeah. I'm kind of looking at it as a function of, of knowledge, energy, and time, something like that. But you mentioned mm. wealth is accelerative. So I'd love to hear you unpack that a little bit. Yeah, the eighth wonder of the world is, is compounding interest. And, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate because it, it, compounding interest is from the mischief of central banks, but it applies to any network that we participate in, uh, including relationships, mm. right? So relationships are also a network effect. And so wealth is accelerative in the sense that if you have a little bit, you can have a lot, lot more. It's the rate at which wealth grows that enables mm. us to lift people out of poverty. Mm. There's also a very, very interesting nominal observational problem here it's it's kind of, it's almost like reverse survivorship bias and that's that there are there are in some sense so many poor people under the capital system because they would literally be dead under socialist system right, right? that there there just isn't enough abundance to support all of those people and this what you talked about in the division of, of labor i think one one way of looking at that is comparative advantages right we're all different mm. we have diverse talents and the ability to specialize, which creates the division of labor, is one of the fundamental wealth creating effects. But in terms of acceleration, I'm really thinking about non nonlinearities or, or things, it's convexity in, in Taleb's word, right? So that you can go from a little bit of wealth to a lot of wealth. And guess what that is? That's income mobility. And guess what the data show? And, and so there's a masterpiece by Thomas Sowell, by the way. And like, if I could only recommend one economics book, well, okay, two. The first would be The Law by Bastiat. Mm. The second would be Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell. And this is where he destroys this idea of equality. And once again, of course, we want absolute blindness and equality under the law, but we can't make people, this is the word I use in the essay, fungible. Mm -hmm. No, no, you, you can't just, human beings are not uniform commodities that you can mm. exchange one for another. And the reason Marx attacks inequality is because he wants to set the focus on envy so that he can induce class warfare. Right. That is what that is all about. Because not only the socialist control of the means of production, distribution, and exchange, but class warfare is a stated goal of Marxism. Mm -hmm. And what he's doing, he's, harm he's harnessing the animus of people who feel slighted or who no. don't have as much as they would like, and then and creating a scapegoat and saying, it's the fault of the capitalists, let's have class warfare. And then again, what you get yes. is equality of death or equality in poverty. Yeah, it's such a tricky situation because it always seems like socialists or, or people, what, what did you say originally? That uh, Thomas Sowell said the first rule of economics is scarcity. The second rule is for politicians to ignore the first rule. Almost I'm, the first rule of politics is ignore the first rule. Of uh, it's like first that's one of the politics. first things. <laughs> yeah. And I'm reminded yeah. here of like um, the seen and the unseen, you know, the book Economics in One Lesson. It's like all the, it's so easy to direct people's attention to the scene. It's the most obvious thing, right? This is like the broken window fallacy that um, Hazlitt unravels in chapter one of uh, Economics in One Lesson, which is another great book I'd recommend. That it's, but it's extremely difficult 
to get people to think about the unseen consequences, right? Like you just described, there's so many poor people alive today, largely because they would be dead under socialism. But under this marginalized form of capitalism we have, they're just living poor, basically. Um, how do we, I mean, <laughs> humans are so good at induction, you know, like relying on our sensory data and then inducing uh, knowledge from that, but we seem to be really bad at deduction. And the whole mm. science of economics, as we're describing here, it's deduced from axioms. Mm. But we don't like we're not almost like biologically not hardwired as well for that as we are induction. And it seems like Marxists and other socialist oh, movements they're preying on that. Right? They're preying on our our bias towards induction over deduction. I think what they're preying on is our inability to start from clean axioms of human behavior. And this is one of the, again, there's a full duality. We have a, a table in the article that shows the duality of the, so in the sense that positive empiric, positivist empiricism or science is inductive, mm -hmm. uh, it is quantitative. On the flip side, praxeology mm -hmm. is deductive, it is qualitative. Mm -hmm. And so Mises's real contribution, and this is the beauty I was trying to get to earlier, even if only a score of people in the world can do pure thinking and create economics, this is so beautiful. Everybody in the world can understand praxeology and it's mm -hmm. urgent that they do. And that's why Mises wrote the work. He didn't expect, I mean, I mean, I wish it wish human action would have been shorter, but he, he didn't expect everyone to be at his level, but he mm -hmm. said, come and check my results. Yeah. That's what he said. And, and that's what, and so it's really, you know, giving people sound logical arguments to understand why things that sound good don't work in practice. And, and one mm -hmm. of the great things, I don't remember which Austrian is that attacks this. Socialism is a kind of shouldism. There's all these shoulds. A should has yeah. no intellectual qu quantity whatsoever. It has no intellectual. Quantity. What does that mean? That mm -hmm. X should be Y. We should have abundance. Well, that sound goods. What does that mean? You didn't provide any solution as to how that will be done. Mm -hmm. And what Sowell says, you know, the, the sleight of hand that the government accomplishes, says government quietly steals from some and loudly, quietly steals from all and loudly gives to a few. That's that's yeah. exactly right. That's what the process of taxation is. It's like, hey, well, let's quietly steal from everybody and then quietly give and loudly, excuse me, give to this specialized group of people, which is always mm. changing. Right. Right. Whoever the central planners wish to favor with with their graces are, are who gets the next government handout program. And it's always for political means. Wow. That's such a great quote. I never heard that one before. Um, okay. So the man is in his nineties. So, so I think, I think he just turned 90. He's an absolute, an absolute beast and, and so great. And so humble, I think so underappreciated. And as really, I think he's like authored over 20 books at this point. Yeah. And I just so, so much respect for him. He's still writing too at 90. It's incredible. I need to, I've read several of his quotes or excerpts that I really enjoy, but I haven't read any of his books yet. So I will take note of that. You said discrimination and disparity was your recommended book of his? Discrimination and disparities or basic economics or advanced okay. economics or intellectual society. But well, I'll keep your life simple. Discrimination disparities is the master work. Okay. And, well, and to, I'm glad you brought that up because what soul shows is that Look, I, I want to state again categorically, because if we need, in order to have persuasive arguments, we have to start with the high ground. Mm. Do I want equality? Do capitalists want equality in the eyes of the law, equality of opportunity? Absolutely. And it's the mm. only system for creating those means. Mm -hmm. But what Sowell shows is that there are complex hidden variables that affect the equality of outcomes. And let me give you an example. He shows 
in the economic literature, and this is a very robust result, that the firstborn child has like amongst other things, a network that surpasses all of the other siblings combined. Mm-hmm. And he says, wait a minute. Well, as much as you can have a controlled experiment in economics, this is a controlled experiment. These people are the same race. Mm-hmm. They had the same upbringing. They have the same economic access. They're part of the same socioeconomic stratum, and yet they have vastly different outcomes. Why? Because there are complex hidden variables in this mm-hmm. process of catalaxy and comparative advantages that are just selecting in the moment groups that, that happen to be able to succeed. Mm-hmm. And so the focus on equality is really an attempt. It's nothing more than inducing class warfare because he basically starts with an absurdity and says human beings should be equal. And then says the way that we're going to get this is we're going to murder all the capitalists. And by the way, the hilarious part about that is that there's nobody to create any abundance or wealth. There's no entrepreneurs to do creative destruction. There's no wealth creation in the economy proper. And then then immediately. So, you know, the first part is the guillotine party where, where everybody's happy. Happy. And we should probably talk about why, you know, how something as innocent as Bernie Sanders, seemingly innocent as Bernie Sanders, can actually end in, in a guillotine party. This is a stretch for a lot of people, but time and time again, that is the lesson of history in Venezuela, in the USSR, uh, in Vietnam, in Cuba. I mean, there's just, just so many, this data point after data point after data point. And the fatal conceit says, no, 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 no. We have more information now. Let's do it again better. Let's right. do socialism again better. Right. Those dangerous words as you describe in your piece this time it's different right um yeah so that again maybe this is where that word equality is so murky because it sounds great like oh of course but it but what we actually want is equality of opportunity not outcome so equality in the eyes of the law right to be all subject to the same rules of the game clearly that makes a lot of sense but playing out the game, you don't necessarily want a quality of outcome because then that's disincentivizing people that would play well. Um, and, you know, really it just doesn't work, right? You can't, what does a quality of outcome mean? It means it doesn't mean anything. It's equilibrium. Well, it's death. It's like, it doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it's um, almost like an evenly rotating economy in that like, you know, yes, Hey, let's exactly. make sure everybody has the same salary. And, you know, one of the things I, I like to think about is, I think AOC made the comment that, you know, hey, after $10 million, who needs that amount of money? And, you know, the the institutions that leftists love, like Elon Musk's companies, electric cars, mm-hmm. Solar City. So this is super interesting. Imagine if his wealth had been capped, his net worth had been capped at $10 million, and the rest is like he's paying like a 90% marginal tax rate. He would not have been able to personally, with his personal fortune, save solar city and save tesla from going out of business right and this is the great point that mises makes everything the socialists want what do they want they want increasing wages increasing standard of living improvements in technology everything the socialist wants comes from one factor and one factor alone and that is capital accumulation the entrepreneur so the entrepreneur and the ability to retain capital and what he Mm -hmm. says this is why the time preference of bitcoin is such an extraordinarily important thing But what he says is that never in history has there been an example of a government that participated in capital accumulation. All governments can Mm. do is expend capital. Only the individual, the entrepreneur, and this is the part of the trust that we need, you know, to, and, and, you know, that's, that's the simplest thing that I think we can impart to others who are listening to this podcast and people who are curious about socialism, curious about economic systems is why should I trust an invisible hand? It sounds horrible. It mm. really, it really mm. sounds like, you know, something that won't work, but we have not only so many examples, but the work of Mises to show how economic calculation 
and percolates throughout the economy mm -hmm. and is the system by which we can provide abundance for others. And where does that abundance come from? This is beautiful. It, the profit in some of Mises' passages is a psychic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Boom, yeah. mind-blowing explosion. That is why in a voluntary exchange, both people can profit. get richer from yes. the exchange. Drop the mic. The Drop only the way. The only way, yeah. the only way. And, and Ahapa says, he's got this great passage where, where he says, if the exchange was not voluntary, then someone was disadvantaged. Yes. And that is a very simple example of praxeological reasoning, right? Mm -hmm. Because the whole reason that people enter into exchanges is that they value the good that they are yes. going to purchase more than the money that's in their pocket, as one right. example. And so that is why wealth is a non-zero-sum game. And to your point, that is only possible in a division of labor. I don't want to or feel like doing everything. I mean, think about it. We will regress. We will, there will not be technology because everybody will resort to autarky and yes. like, oh, I need to grow my own food. The reason I can be a computer scientist and the reason I can write software that makes other people's life interesting is that someone has handled, you know, through voluntary exchange, yes. someone else is growing the food. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, such an important point and you know just again on the equality of outcome nonsense just apply that idea to sport like what you're gonna like play a whole season of football so all the football teams at the end of the year can be equal like everyone won everyone gets a participation trophy like what there'd be no more football like that'd be the last season of football there would ever be so the whole reason you play the game is to determine who is most fit to competing within that rule set and in, in markets and capitalism, that's like who is satisfying the most wants with the least efforts. That's who you want to promote. <laughs> that's who you want to be rich. Right. So, well, and, and this is why in a capitalist system, the consumers are the Kings who gets money, right. the person who satisfies the demands of the consumers the, consumer. the most. Yeah. And if you don't like the economy we have, stop shopping at Amazon, right. stop using an iPhone. And then I think socialists will find quickly that there's, you know, there's, right. there's no technology and there, there's nothing to eat. So what all the entrepreneurs are doing is responding to the aggregate demands right. of the consumers. And if we want to change the behaviors of consumers, certainly we can do that, but not through law. That must be done through culture mm -hmm. because the law always then becomes overburdensome and overcomplicated. And there was something so interesting that you were saying that, that I love so much. It, it reminds me uh, of this idea that that soul brings up and he says in the soviet union the former soviet union first of all a brand conveys a lot of information this differentiation right mm -hmm. so in the soviet union they tried to make all commodities fungible mm -hmm. and there what happened was is that consumers started to realize that certain factories produce better output and so there was no branding let's say on the sack of, of flour that you bought they started to memorize that certain barcodes meant that they came from the better factories. Mm -hmm. And so they knew that the goods weren't equal all to one another. And what became the brand was just the, the serial numbers that were on the package. And, and this goes so far, this is amazing. So as, as recently as Boris Yeltsin, I think it was Gorbachev's successor, right? Right when the Soviet Union was falling, he visited the United States at some point and, and they took him into a supermarket, okay? This is so mind boggling. He, he thought the shelves were staged mm. because he could not believe the abundance and the variety of products that were mm. available. And this is the leader of a socialist nation, right? Right. So this is again, going back to how division of labor and the ability to really 
engage with other people as abstractions, things that you don't have to worry about, free up your time and allow you to 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 generate the things that your comparative advantages dictate yes. that you're uniquely good at. Yes, and the description of profit as psychological is so key to this because if we just look at it that way, the only way to maximize psychological profits in the world, you could substitute perhaps happiness or satisfaction here, is to make it all voluntary, right? As soon as you have something that's involuntary, as you said, souls or whoever's quote, someone's been disadvantaged, right? Someone's been, yeah. so you have, you have decremented aggregate psychological profit every time there's an involuntary exchange. So it's like that, I mean, that sums it up for me. Like, how can we, you know, value is being destroyed in any involuntary exchange whatsoever. I'm kind of substituting value for psychological profit, but, and is that not the aim, right? That's the aim is to just create as much abundance and psychological satisfaction as possible. Seems obvious, but we can only do that with equality in the, in opportunity, right? In the eyes of the law or the rules of the game. And this is where I think Bitcoin is just so important, right? You want to talk about equality is like, we actually are all equal in the eyes of Bitcoin. It's just like, yeah, it's a neutral monetary network. You can work to procure it. You can't change it. You can't politicize it. You can't bend the rules to favor yourself and disfavor others. It's like, we've been trying to develop a game like this. seems like across all human history. Well, I want to add to that, that people are terrified. People are terrified and implicitly that if we do not consciously plan the order, it won't happen. Right. And, and this is the great right. So, so the way Mises resolves this dichotomy is like, look, you have a choice. You can submit to the demands of the consumers or you can submit to the arbitrary and incomplete judgments of the central planner. And those are really the only two alternatives. Okay. And this is, oh, this is so, so beautiful in so many ways. We as human beings are very proud of our, what Hume calls ratiocinative or, or properties of reason. And Descartes, it was Descartes who kind of introduced an error and said, I think, therefore I am. Mm. More correctly would have been, I feel, therefore I think, and I'll go into this later. But we get so far into our rational minds that we forget that everything about us is survival. And this is now the beauty, the beautiful link between evolution and the extended order. What Hayek says is that not only rational conscious planning is part of generating the extended order, right? At least on the individual level. Certainly economic calculation is a conscious or semi-conscious process that, that people under, undergo or undertake. But we have an innumerable number of received behaviors that are correct from the standpoint of evolution. We don't know why we do them. I'll give examples in just a moment. Like we don't know why, is there really a reason if a person happens to be Jewish, why they don't eat pork? What is the reason? Mm -hmm. The reason is this is what my ancestors did. And what Hayek points out is that there are all these, he calls them morals in a general sense. They could include religion. They could include trade practices. You know, why do, why do the bricklayers do things a certain way? I don't know, because my ancestors did that. My predecessors did that. So Hayek shows that there are all these behaviors that we engage in and that organize society, which are not rationally provable. I can't prove my religion. That's not the point. The point is I am doing as my ancestors did. And now here's where it becomes absolutely smashing and powerful is that these are the procedures that survive the process of social evolution. 
Right. We receive the practices that work. Let's take a crazy, silly example. Uh, it's super interesting. So in India, we the country of my parents, you only ever greet, if you're going to give somebody something, this is maybe a little, a little bit risque, but if you're going to give somebody something, you only give with your right hand because the left hand traditionally is used for wiping yourself. Mm. So here is this strange received custom which is a matter of hygiene. It's because the people who came with the left hand didn't survive. They were transmitting disease to the people around them. So Hayek, if you're interested at all in the theory of evolution, goes very deeply invested in the fatal conceit. It's just, we have all these received behaviors. And he says that these are not correct or rationally provable in any way. We receive them through time because there are these strategies that our ancestors used to survive and we merely imitated them. Mm. And this is the beginning of the deconstruction of the fatal conceit that we have to plan everything. There's all kinds of things that we do and we don't know why we're doing that, but they are nevertheless important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I, it's evolution, right? What works is kept. Uh, there's also a, the Lindy effect, right? Like the reason yeah. certain things survive or when things survive for a long period of time, there's so there's a reason right so it's it's almost arrogant to try to say oh we don't you know we just dispense with all this ancestral knowledge we've inherited and do something new like you don't know what baby you're throwing out with the bathwater, so to that's speak. right um and, and the there's if i may the one like super deep piece on evolution it turns out that in all likelihood charles darwin got the concept of evolution by reading adam smith and by reading the wealth of nations so if you go back and you the early editions of the origin of species do not even use the word evolution, first point. Second thing, it's, it's likely that Darwin was, was reading Adam Smith, was reading The Wealth of Nations. And it is through, so long story short, economists had the distinction of evolution before the biologists did. And it is again, so here's the thing, our very existence is conditioned by a set of factors that are totally immoral. How did we get here? Any number of what we would call immoral things happen in the context of evolution. And this is where you have to distinguish things that are true through survival, through pragmatism, and things that we believe to be true or should be true through our reason. And those things come into conflict. Yeah, really good point there. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single-source solution for everything Bitcoin. Okay, so one of the other abstractions in a socialized, or even a semi-socialized society, like is this notion of public property or shared ownership. Um, 
I've talked about this a lot, actually, with Jimmy Song. Uh, we went through the book, Democracy, the God that Failed. Mm. And um, it seems to be a bit of an oxymoron. I just wondered if you had thoughts on that, this, this notion of shared ownership or public property. There's, there's a quote that from Milton Friedman. Uh, he attributes to Aristotle. I was never able to find the original, but we'll, we'll go on, on Friedman's honors. I think it's in Free to Choose. And he says, when everyone owns everything, no one takes care of anything. And, and this is the problem. So Mises took a totally different tack. He took the economic calculation tack. But, but this is the problem of incentives and socialism is who will take out the garbage, right? If, if everyone's doing what they want, who, who's going to do the unpleasant jobs? And the, the empirical data points, again, going back to the Soviet Union, there were people starving and food rotting in the fields at the same time. How is that possible? The reason is if I hustle my tail off and do everything I can to harvest my crops, make them beautiful, I gain nothing. There's no incremental lift to my personal well-being. There's no way to align my personal well-being with, with the global, the globally rational economy or the extended order. Let's call it that. Yeah, it's great. So, I mean, again, property as being a relationship between an individual owner and a particular asset, the concept of public property, it just obfuscates the whole thing. Like where, where is the role of the individual and what is the particular asset in question? It's just, it's, it's a not, it's so, nonsense. Uh, I'm just laughing because it's just so great. And it goes to the debasement of language and, and Rothbard also picks up on this. And he, he says, you know, if we are the state, this is the camouflage. So remember the camouflage and inequality. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not equal to myself. Point number one. The, the top 1% or 10%, whoever you want to hate on, are not equal to themselves. They're not only in that strata, they're moving in and out of the, the upper mm -hmm. 10%. And uh, this ultimate point, which Hoppe makes, is that calling something shared solves its shared nature in name only. Why? Because mm -hmm. the fundamental underlying problem is the power to control. Right. So even if you make everything, everything, look, whatever, this park belongs to everyone. Guess what? There's going to be a few administrators who actually exercise power over it. And this right. is the hilarious thing that Rothbard said. He says, if we are the state, then anyone killed by the state simply committed suicide. Right. Exactly. Right? And, and this is such an ab absurd thing to say. And Mises, I mean, this is amazing. This guy's writing in 49. And he's writing zingers that could demolish, you know, every, every member of the House of Representatives mm -hmm. right now. And what he says is, we owe it to ourselves. This is, again, this ideological camouflage. Mm -hmm. We owe it to ourselves is a fallacy. It would be more correct to say that we are robbing Peter of 1970 to pay, well, get that, we are robbing Peter of 1940 to pay mm -hmm. Paul of 1970. So right. see all these games that are played with language. And this is both one of the beauties and the risks of praxeology. If we're going to have a formal deductive system, we need to be very, very, very careful with our definitions. Mm -hmm. And you know, both computer science and praxeology are informal systems, but in computer science, if I say X is between one and a thousand, that is never going to change through the, throughout the history of mankind. But all of the words that Mises used can be attacked and debased. And that's why we have right. to be very, very careful with our with our definition so we don't get into these social absurdities of everyone owning everything and the actual outcome that's produced is no one takes care of anything because what, what incentive do I have? Right, right, 100%. And I would just add the one thought here that, you know, fiat currency inflation is nothing more than a violation of private property. So it's 
I almost consider this to be like the way we are largely gripping the world, right? Is through our property rights. Like I can go and work and create value, secure in the knowledge that the fruits of my labor can be preserved in something, right? Via some social contract, I can protect my ownership interest in these, in this value I've created, this wealth I've created. Absent the integrity of that social contract, social contract, there's no incentive for me to do anything. There's no incentive for me there's no incentive for social cohesion, frankly. It's just you you descend into barbarity. And that I think that's what public property is. It's just it's it's antithetical to private property. Private property is the only mechanism that um that enables social cooperation under the division of labor, basically. Totally true. And that is the fallacy of the fungibility of human beings all over mm-hmm. again. I will mm-hmm. never work for the collective. I will never work for us. Right. See, and so that's the camouflage. They're playing this trick. Us actually means well. It has many um. meanings, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Well, it be well, God. It actually means the state. And so I'm yeah. never going to yeah. work for for an abstract collection of human beings. The mm-hmm. way I will hustle and struggle for my family. And you can see this even a silly movie like Pursuit of Happiness. <laughs> why? Why do w- people walk on water to to protect the things they love? And it is not possible from an evolutionary standpoint, even to engender love for all human beings the same way that you're gonna have for yourself and for the people around you. And I will even go as far as to say is that, you know, in the article, we talk about conditions under which socialism is more or less viable. And one of them is homogeneity. And if you look at countries, so Scandinavia is a market economy, very, very clear. Anyone interested in that? And like, if you wanna refute every democratic socialist argument ever with data, read debunking utopia. And it's about the myth of Scandinavian socialism. In any case, the socialist elements of those societies function because they are racially and culturally very homogenous. They are more similar to one another than they are different. And they can trust because there's such a strong culture of hard work, for instance, in Mm -hmm. Sweden. That is totally different. There's nothing wrong with immigrants, totally pro-immigration. That is totally different than people coming from another country with a totally different work ethic who want to just live off that system. And so in in the theory of altruism in biology, you basically have a number and it is what percentage genetic similarity do we have, Mm. right? So you are half each roughly, it's more complicated than that of your parents. And so there's a numerical score that we can can apply to kind of measure how strong altruism should be. And it's Mm. purely based on genetic factors. Really interesting. And then I'll just say that that this obscurity of us or we or society, like you see this reflected in Paul Krugman, you know, he's like one of the leading Keynesian economists, what I would call fiat economists of the world today, where he says outrageous things like the national debt doesn't matter because we owe it to ourselves. And I'm just mind blown to like see an, an outright charlatan on the highest echelon economic podium in the world that can say things that make like absolute zero fucking sense and get away with it. And people think they applaud him and it's unbelievable. It's super interesting. And that is why Mises was so careful with his choice of terms in Mm -hmm. praxeology. And I think we, I think we have, even if we don't agree with Krugman, I think we have to assume that he's operating in good faith. And what does that mean? It means he doesn't, it means that the smartest people in the world can make fundamental intellectual errors and that's what's happening. And it's our job. And again, going back to Mises, he's like, look, 
there's only a score of economists in the world, but everybody can understand praxeology. It's up to the people who right. are listening to decide whether or not it's true. But let, let's see if we can debunk that. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, it's like, hang on, let's just stop for a moment. What does that mean? And there Mises just demolishes it. He said, we're robbing Peter of 1940 who saved yeah. to pay Paul of 1970. It's so clear that yeah. we is a complete, it's a fabrication. It, yes. it, it's a confabulation of language. And you know, this is one of the things I worry about in, in Nostrand economics is that computer languages have very definite mathematical rules right. that back them. I do think the system of praxeology is formal, but we need to do a better job of defending its formality, making mm -hmm. sure we're very clear about definitions, very clear about axioms. Having read a fair amount of Mises, Hayek, uh, even some Schumpeter, I, I was shocked not to see everything neatly written down and approved. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Robert, I think right. we need to help individuals to, to do that first principles thinking, you know, you, you don't have to be a genius and you know what, that's, I think, I think that's so important that we, we don't want to blind people with word salads. There's a very important existential question here. And that is what economic system should we choose? And Mises says, this is a matter of life and death. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, not, we should talk about Weltfreiheit at some point, but he says, socialism is no more a substitute for capitalism than potassium cyanide is a substitute for water. Right. And it sounds like he's getting a zinger in there. But what he's saying is like, look, folks, I just watched the world burn. Yeah. I'm going to predict for the next 50 years, all the economic systems that are going to burn. And if you take your life seriously and don't want to subscribe to aggressive philosophy, I'm telling you that voluntary exchange is, is the way that you and your family are going to survive. Yeah. And it, just to reinforce your earlier point, like when we blur, when we, I guess, corrupt the precision of language, right? Again, we described money being this common denominator of prices that's like the language for markets. Like they have similar consequences, right? If we corrupt the precision of language or we corrupt the precision of money prices, it all breaks down. Like these are the protocols to which we can interact faithfully, right? We, we can um, dependably mean the same thing when we say something or receive something, right? Whether it's a word or a price, that's what allows us to coordinate our efforts and actions in the world peacefully and in a way that yes. creates wealth. If you break the protocol or corrupt the protocol, the whole thing's ruined. So we've probably said that 10 times on the show, but I just think like if people could just believe that, like know that money is as important as language itself. So these attacks on free speech, like every time we print money, we're attacking free speech. Like it's the equivalent or worse. Um, anyways, I'll digress. Should we now talk about marginal utility theory and the diamond water paradox? Because I think this is a good way to explain a real revolution that took place, what, the mid 1800s? Yeah, that sounds like well, the number I have in my head for Manger, somebody should check us, 1867, something yeah, yeah. around there for, for marginal utility. Well, this, this really shows how people can be too clever for their own good. It, and by the way, I consider Adam Smith to be one of the greatest minds of all time. And I think, you know, in the social sciences, he's second in citations only to, wait for it, Karl Marx. Mm. So the diamond water paradox. Well, this is super interesting. So, so the question the question for the audience is why do diamonds cost more than water when water is clearly more essential for human life? Adam Smith comes along and says, wait a minute. He's like, well, 
there's use value. Water clearly has higher use value, but there's also exchange value. What, what price something transacts at on the market and diamonds clearly have higher exchange value. Manger comes along and said, wait a minute, you just split two things. There's only one human value, right? And this would be critical when we ultimately get to Mises because I can't compute based on two things. Mm -hmm. I, I need an unambiguous value or price actually for an entity. And that is part of the economic calculation process. And Menger says, and it's so brilliant and yet so simple at the same time, like so much of Austrian economics, he says, look, when we're talking about the price, quote unquote, of water and the price, quote unquote, of diamonds, that is their general value. I got news for y'all. People don't buy based on general value. They buy based on specific value. How much is the unit of this good worth to me at this moment in time? So Menger took a paradox, like, so Adam Smith was like, hey, there's exchange value and use value. That's the best I can do. And Menger said, no, there's only one thing, marginal utility. And it is by acquiring this good, how much do I benefit or change my situation? Mm. And that's where we get this concept of diminishing returns. And that's marginal utility in action is that, you know, once I have hundred gallons of water, the, the 101st may not be that useful to me, but if I'm in a desert, you know, there's, I don't know if you all have ever been in situations of extreme thirst, but water becomes beyond precious. <laughs> And it's worth more than you, you know, one cannot eat diamonds, one cannot drink diamonds. So, so that was how, how Menger resolved that, that diamond water paradox. And in addition to, to marginal utility, he contributed this concept of higher order goods, right? Because had Mises only been able to say that economic calculation applies, applies at the order of consumer goods or finished goods, he wouldn't have been able to totally demolish, demolish the, the ability or the inability of socialist economies to calculate because socialist manager isn't actually transacting always in finished goods. They need to get all these raw materials and starting points, higher order goods, in order to execute their plans. Yeah, excellent. And then I guess one thing I would add there is like prior to the marginal utility revolution, there was, it was believed that value existed in these elementary particles called utils, right? That a glass of water had so many utils versus diamonds had so many utils. Yeah. So it really shattered one of these just long held delusions. Um, and it, the water diamond paradox was ancient, right? Was it, they were talking about that in ancient Greece, right? Plato, I think yeah. is the earliest yeah. like, known. And, and it's called, I think it's called more properly called paradox of value. Mm. Right. And it is this idea that, you know, just because something is essential, it doesn't tell you about the price that it's going to transact on the market. Yeah. And so it just, for me, it was a reminder that we're still very early in the science of economics. Like we only figured out marginal utility a hundred, what, what are we, 170 years ago, something like that. Like it's not uh, that let's new. See. Yeah, yeah, right, right in that order. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yep, so, Some, something like that. Um, yeah, 150 years on that order. So, okay. Given that, we should probably now talk about the difference between... Well, I mean, we talked a little bit about ordinal versus cardinal, but I don't think we described the process actually by which we synthesize subjective ordinal value into objective cardinal prices. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, well, this is great because we can talk a little bit about imaginary constructions and mm. an example. So again, as a reminder, these imaginary constructs are in some sense the, the experiments of Austrian economists. And, and they differ from lab experience experiments in that, you know, Mises says they don't have to have any relationship whatsoever to the real world. He's not concerned with that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. He's concerned purely with their logical value. So these may be, you know, completely fabricated or ridiculous constructs. Mises, I think, was a coherentist. He was more interested in how the ideas related to one another and what they showed us about was eternally true and a priori. That's important. He argues that the, the axiom of human action is available to each person through self-introspection. And so, so the idea that humans have goals and they take action comes from our knowledge of ourselves. We don't need to be taught that by anybody. And Hoppe gives this, I don't call it quite a proof or a disproof, but he's like, if anybody wanted to disprove the axiom of action, they would need to have the goal of disproving the axiom of action. Mm-hmm. And in the process, they would be showing that, you know, humans that's a goal. Yeah. Do have goals. Yeah. Can you, can you bring me back on track? I, there, you were going for something specific there. Uh, no, I'm just looking, what I'm trying to transition to now is the discussion on mm. economic calculation versus the algorithmic nature of uh, socialism, I guess, but uh, yes. trying to speak to how the market process actually synthesizes all these subjective ordinal valuations into an objective right. number, the price, um, yep. which is just not possible in anything other than a market, basically. Yeah. And, and what Mises says is that economic calculation requires a denominator. That denominator is money and money mm-hmm. is denominated in prices. Yeah. And the leap from ordinals to cardinals is that, hey, I have my subjective personal values. Ah, yes, that's where I got off track. Mm-hmm. So Mises introduces this concept of autistic exchange. What if you're Robinson Crusoe, you're alone on an island, you have an economy of one? Well, then ordinals kind of get you everywhere you're going. But now as acting man, when I need to interact with a common denominator with other humans across the division of labor, we need to speak, this is your point, a common language. And the market has taken what were subjective ordinals and elevated them into cardinals. And and there's something really interesting here that fascinated me. First of all, I think a democracy and republic are very different. And then I think Hoppe is brutal in calling democracy a soft form of communism. And it's, it's never been taken as anything much more seriously in the history of ideas. But in democracy, we have this unfortunate property that if you don't participate, you don't get a say. Not only that, but if 51% defeats 49%, guess what? That 51% wins 100%. Mm-hmm. One thing I was thinking of as you started to go down that path is that the market process itself, and I, I vaguely remember Mises making an argument to this effect, that the reason democracy became the new mode of statism is because it was actually trying to emulate the actual democracy in a free market, right? Where people are voting by buying and selling um, in a way that I guess created more abundance, but also called into question older forms of governance. So, and Hoppe thoroughly destroys Ah. democracy in his book. Um, so thank you. You you brought me back on track and Mm -hmm. and it was this, it's a really deep observation in that I had, it's something that came to me while I was reading Hayek. And so in a democracy, if you don't participate, you potentially get nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the beautiful thing about the market. The people who don't participate get a say in the price. Right. Because by not buying and by not doing anything, you are dictating something about the price. This is a very, very powerful feature of markets is that right. it's not that the goods go to the richest people. They go to the people who want them the most. And by not buying, you are conveying a signal to the entrepreneurs that right. hey, we don't want this thing. Right. And so I think what you were interested in was this bootstrapping process, right? Mm-hmm. So the, what the market does is that we have all these subjective values. And I was going on into imaginary constructs. So you're Robinson Crusoe, you're alone on an island. Mm-hmm. Mises calls this autistic exchange. Right. And, you know, if I only have to trade with myself, I can kind of reconcile all of my different preferences. 
But when I need to exchange with other human beings, then we need a common denominator, and that common denominator is money. And the prices are arrived at not by any central planner, and we should talk about the algorithmic nature of central planning, mm -hmm. but by this consensus. It's not a consensus by the process that the market undergoes. That's literally what Cadillacy is, mm -hmm. right? So what they really, what Mises and Hayek would have preferred that the economy was called was the one thing they cared about, which is how prices and exchange ratios get generated. Mm -hmm. And to your point earlier about there are no constants, what is inconstant from the, the Austrian perspective is the exchange ratios. Right? Mm -hmm. So even if chemistry and physics are totally constant, there's a fixed amount of gold in the Earth's crust. I have absolutely no guarantee. Although we tried, gold was like the, the primordial form of Bitcoin. I want to guarantee that I will be able to get a certain amount of stuff with gold, but my goodness, those numbers are all over the place. And mm -hmm. that's what Misa says. There are no constant exchange ratios. I can't, why? I mean, go back to the axioms of practicality. All people are different. Yeah. One of them. And human action is fraught with uncertainty. This is a huge, huge observation of mm -hmm. Mises. And that in participating in an economy or participating in an exchange, what the individuals are actually trying to do is to soothe their inner uneasiness. I think right. this is such a great observation, right? Yep. So here's Mises, this great intellectual, and he's like, well, I think what's motivating most people is to vaguely kind of mollify this, this feeling of uneasiness that they have. Mm -hmm. And that takes us to another one of the axioms, which is that in, in many circumstances, individuals prefer leisure. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I'll read a little excerpt here and then just getting now we're going to start to bridge the praxeological discussion into the realm of computation a little more and that's where i think your piece really shines because you you've made some interesting comparisons here slightly long excerpt but here it goes so you say socialist economies cannot by definition perform economic calculation because there is no algorithmic process for turning subjective ordinal numbers into objective cardinal numbers for ordinal preferences are purely subjective and essentially dispersed knowledge in the hearts of acting humans. In the absence of a market, socialist managers have no means to convert their subjective preferences into objective and actionable plans. For in a socialist economy of public ownership, no real exchange takes place. There's only an internal transfer of goods, as you said earlier. So we can now rephrase the fatal conceit in computational terms. The fatal conceit of socialist is the mistaken belief that algorithmic pro procedures can satisfy the material needs of mankind. There is no formula to human action, right? To the economy. Like it's, it must um, be self-organized, I guess is maybe the way to put it. I, I'll let you yeah, I'm so glad you, yeah. you brought us back to that. And it, it takes us back to this concept that for bureaucracies, procedure is everything and outcome is nothing. Mm -hmm. And this is also the case in computation. That is what a computer is. And when you program computers, you, it's intensely frustrating. First of all, it's beautiful and amazing. And you can mm -hmm. create the semblance of intelligence behavior, but the computer has no concept of what are called semantics. Semantics are human intentions. Mm -hmm. And syntax is just the computer is all about, oh, you, you dropped a period, you, you dropped a semicolon, this variable, you try to divide by zero, and that's what the computer can tell you. And so the, the, this is the, the real leap, the intellectual leap for me, the, the deepness, the, the thing that brought me the most understanding of Austrianism and the limits of central planning. So 
we know from the work of Turing and others that the theory of computation, the system of computation, that formal system has definite limits. And now it's significant that bureaucracies have the features of computers because in order for a bureaucracy to be fair, they must follow, this is the definition of an algorithm, a step-by-step -step procedure for producing an outcome. Mm -hmm. If they do not follow a well-defined procedure, then it cannot be fair because they're the, you're at the whim of the bureaucrats. You're, mm -hmm. you're just at the, the discretion of whomever, again, what Hoppe says, the actual difference in capitalism versus socialism is the power to control. And mm -hmm. not the difference in capitalism and socialism. That is the difference that this kind of camouflages, the difference yep. in ownership. So, so this idea that bureaucracies, in order to be fair, and again, well, let me see if I can come up with, with another. I think, can you find, there, there's a quote in the article that Mises has. He, I think if you look for the word absurd, he said, the wheels will turn, but no, he says, the reference will be made to an absurd mechanism, but no actual outputs, no actual sense will be made. Yeah, I think right here we've got Mises saying, all transactions will be subject to the control of a supreme authority recourse will be had to the senseless output of an absurd apparatus. The wheels will turn, but will run to no effect. How, how, how beautiful is that? And so here Mises is showing us the mechanistic nature of bureaucracies, yeah. right? So once we establish this parallel, and again, I'm very careful not to say that we can apply the results of computer science to human action. Right. What I am saying is that we have a beautiful imaginary construct, which is, again, the laboratory of experiment for praxeologists to say, hey, wait a minute. There are totally cases where we have a well-defined procedure, but we aren't able to produce certain types of outcomes. Mm -hmm. And this is what really got me thinking that if we start to think of bureaucracies as sets of algorithmic procedures, and anybody that's, that's what, this is what Byzantine mm -hmm. governance is all about, right. is that, hey, you need signatures and triplicate. Let's go to the DMV. Oh, wait, it's going right. to take the whole day. They're not open. It's Sunday. Let's go yeah. on Monday. Oh, they only work nine to five, right? Yeah. Fill out this form. There's Fill out this form. Fill out that form. Yeah. It's very much like working with a senseless machine. And although the people yeah. who are working there may have compassion for you, they're just doing their jobs. Yeah. A friend who worked in government observed that government workers are very careful, A, not to let anyone else do their job, and B, not to do anything outside of their job description, right? So again, because there's no, there's no concept of ownership. So the short of that is to explain that once we understand that the engine of bureaucracy or the engine of central planning has an algorithmic nature, we can start to look at the work of Turing. Because it was Turing who showed us that any algorithmic, formal system has very definite limits on mm. what it can compute. Mm. And so that's what I really use in the article is that no matter how informed a bureaucracy may be, any fundamentally step-by-step -step algorithm procedure is very, very likely to have limits. And the market isn't quite algorithmic. Like how right. do you describe, can I write down what procedure people go through when they wake up every morning and think right. about what their next human actions are? There isn't a good way to capture that. Right. Right, right. Yeah, I get maybe this is like the an algorithm is a clearly defined process, whereas the market is an um, undefinable process in a way, right? Like, you know, the axioms of what's that taking is... place, but you can't say what it is. You can't capture it. It's um, kind of everywhere and nowhere sort of thing. 
Yeah, that's right. We, we know that it's, it's just like the murmuration of Starbucks. We know that it's mm-hmm. going to happen. We know that it's going to be structured. We know that it's going to look like murmuration, but yeah. I really can't tell you where all the birds are going to be and what the shape of the murmuration is going to be. Exactly. I have no idea. Yeah. And this is what punched me in the gut as a computer scientist is that Mises meant to say that the problem of economic calculation is not solvable by central planning, mm-hmm. but it is solvable by the market economy. Yes, And this gets us into the idea that, I mean, the, the work of Alan Turing is something, and all the people around him, Haskell Curry, Alonzo Church, is so haunting in its beauty, but he made a very simple statement. So, and, and this touches on Noam Chomsky as well. So Noam Chomsky, the linguist, he actually developed in the 50s something called the Chomsky hierarchy. Okay. And in the Chomsky hierarchy, there are different classes of automata. And why would Chomsky, the linguist, be interested in this? There are different types of grammars that we can define, right? And in the hierarchy, so it's a little bit confusing because T0 or type 0 is the top of the hierarchy and type 3 is the lowest. So we have, for instance, at type 0, recursively innumerable languages. Then we have context-free. Then we have context-sensitive. So there's a hierarchy of languages. Mm-hmm. Chomsky was interested in informal languages, right? So the difference between a formal, we're talking in natural language right now. Mm-hmm. Formal language is the languages that we use to communicate to computers. Mm-hmm. And here was the important thing. In the Chomsky hierarchy, at the top of this hierarchy were the, the type zero languages or the Turing machines. And then at the bottom is something that we call discrete finite automata. So there were different mm-hmm. classes of automata. And again, we can think of, we just heard Mises in his own words, a bureaucracy. We've heard Mises, we've heard Sol mm-hmm. describe bureaucracy as this mechanistic type of creature. There are different classes of problems. There are different classes of automata, number one, and they can solve different classes of automata. Mm-hmm. And as we go up the Turing hierarchy from type three, again, it sounds a little strange going up, but from type three to type zero languages, mm-hmm. Every higher level of automaton can solve problems that were totally unsolvable at the prior level. Mm. And this is the thing that gave me great appreciation for what Mises was trying to express was mm. that, hey, there are the, a, social, a planned economy simply cannot perform catalaxy. It cannot compute market prices. Right. And in the same way, a discrete finite automaton, there's so many things it can't do. There's all, I mean, this is what can be, the theory of computer science is all about. Mm-hmm. Cannot, for instance, reverse a string. It cannot do things that a higher order automaton, again, not to say that the economy is an automaton really, mm-hmm. but there are higher classes. There are higher classes of process. That's what I'm yeah. trying to say. There are higher classes of process that can do everything the prior levels could do, but the yeah. prior levels cannot do what those higher classes can do. And right. that's really what Mises was trying to say about economic calculation is, hey, I have this problem that we cannot solve in an algorithmic way, but I know that it is solvable through a market and a medium of exchange. Yeah, it's beautiful. So you'd almost think of the market as the highest order process on that hierarchy. It's certainly higher. It's certainly higher yeah. than central planning, right? Yes. Why? Again, this mechanistic nature of central planning isn't able to perform catalogs. It right. can't compute prices. It can't compute exchange ratios because and this is, you know, this is really interesting. It's almost like the state commits the fallacy of we. Mm-hmm. It, it's stuck in Robinson Crusoe land of only being able to perform autistic exchange because we're all the same we. Yeah. And so bureaucrats can only transfer within this anonymous we of ordinality. Yeah. They don't have cardinality. They can't assign actual values to things. 
Right. And in this sense, it is a weaker, there, is a, there are classes of problems that cannot be solved by the process of bureaucracy. Mm. And what Mises is essentially arguing is that catalaxy is a higher process. It's a stronger process that can, through a medium of exchange and through a market, can perform economic calculation. And that's why the economic calculation problem in his worldview mm. is unsolvable by any socialist or central engine of planning. Yeah, to tie this back to our earlier point, then the market is more like the organic cat and central planning is like the inorganic washing machine, right? There's, yes, there yes. Are, there's a complexity of biological process that the cat does that the washing machine cannot do. Um, Bingo. I'll read an excerpt. And the fatal, here. Sorry, go ahead. Please, please do. The fatal conceit is I can build a better cat. Don't worry. We'll, yes, make, we'll right. make a better fluffy, yes. a fluffy for you. We're going to, we're going to, we've studied fluffy. We've taken fluffy apart right. in the laboratory and I using rational procedures will design you. I want to use the example of dogs because dogs truly are man's best friend. I don't yeah. know any, anybody, <laughs> any dog lovers out there. They, they will not. And, and what, what is the reason? Billions of years of evolution and exactly. co and tens of thousands of years of coevolution right. with humanity produced the dog. It wasn't yes. a conscious procedure. It was an evolution of mutual needs. Right. And the fatal conceit is that my present consciousness and decision-making is more intelligent than those billions of years of evolution, <laughs> right? That is one formulation of it. Yeah. It is It is actually that wherever there is order, it must have been designed. It's almost like a superstition. It's almost like intelligent design. That's what yeah. the fatal conceit is. If there's order, it must have been designed by someone. But we know, we know from economies, we know from catalaxy, right. we know from the murmuration of starlings, we know from yeah. schools of fish, right. that you can have incredibly simple rules that lead to lead to incredibly complicated higher order and extended order structures yeah. and that's what emergence is all about in the theory of complex systems right right so i'll read this excerpt from mises that and then we'll go, go into the spiders and marijuana which i thought was pretty cool part of your paper uh mises elucidates quote it is not the task of economic calculation to expand man's information about future conditions its task is to adjust his actions as well as possible to his present opinion concerning want satisfaction in the future. For this purpose, acting man needs a method of computation and computation requires a common denominator to which all items entered are to be referable. The common denominator of economic calculation is money. So, I mean, I just love, it. it's like money is the base layer operating system for this whole thing, Yes, right? It, you just, it's ones and zeros, really. I mean, it's the most fundamental. It's the atom out of which we construct the higher order. Right. And so it's because funny. It's I mean, not funny, but um, I guess it makes sense that that is what the socialists attack, right? They attack the money. They attack property um, to try and uh, impose this conceit on this organic market process that is intrinsically more intelligent than any planner or planners could ever possibly be. But they're trying to... Um, I don't know what to dominate it, take it over, outsmart it. I'm not sure. The, I think outsmart is the word and that's why it's yeah. the fatal conceit, not the fatal error, right? right. It, it is the belief that they're, that they somehow have higher knowledge. So in spite of the fact, the numerous constructive examples of dispersed knowledge, right? The man on the spot, mm -hmm. all kinds of instances, right? Hey, the, the bird, the, the starling that's flying, I just need to not crash. Yeah. They deny the existence of this knowledge. They deny the existence of 
things that are true but cannot be proven. They deny the existence of received evolutionary social behaviors and say, I'm the smartest, I have the most money, I have the computers, I can plan, I can make a better dog, I can make a better cat. Right. And so, and it's very, very seductive. Why? Because the achievements of technology are absolutely extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And they are, in some sense, guilty of breaking the praxeological boundary. Maybe that's why Mises said you cannot use the scientific method for human action right. and must not use the scientific method for human action. There are no controlled experiments. There are no constants. There is no way that I can hold all the innumerable variables that guide human behavior still so that I could even test one and understand its function part uh, separate from the other holes, right? This is just, this is why intervention, this goes back to an early point that you made, is, is more, we think of intervention as something we would do to a machine. We swap out mm-hmm. the gear, but it's more like blood and gut surgery. Yeah. And if you push on part A, part Z will almost certainly be infected because that is the definition of complexity. Yes. Is that all the parts are interrelated in ways that we can't possibly enumerate or understand. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that complexity blinds us to arrows of causality. So we push on part A and things are going to happen in parts A, B, C, D, E, F that we can't even foresee. Um, I just want to, again, revisit here this idea of the money being so important because this is where fiat comes in, right? Not just fiat currency, but the idea of fiat is like, because I said so, rather than, rather than truth being a product of discovery, it's an attempt to make some assertion about reality that overrides reality itself. Um, And this is, you know, in my mind, we're talking about all this inherited wisdom, all this intrinsic wisdom or knowledge of nature that's being ignored, right? All this, this, um, inheritance from from evolutionary history is basically trying to the planner wants to ignore that and override it right with their own present viewpoint the original what fiat where fiat came from was fiat lux right god said let there be light so there's this original decree that you know was the starting point of nature in that that wisdom tradition so every form of fiat i think whether it's fiat currency or fiat legislation there's it's humans telling other humans what to do under the veiled threat of force. So it's really like man attempting to play God in a way. So I think it's just this kind of an interesting connection that they're ignoring all of this evolutionary history, right? Which was designed without a designer, presumably I'm using the word God here. It's just kind of like the loose term for wherever we got all this energy and information and, and knowledge. Um, And that assertion, it just never works, right? Like you can't, I can't make a statement and say sand is money now. And I can't expect that to stick. Um, It just always creates externalities and, and, and blow ups of some kind. And I, I just can't help but shake the feeling that is why the central planner confuses the cat for the washing machine, right? They think somehow that, I don't know that they have the power to play God and, and it gets even darker well, when you that, start that to is, look, look at the consequences of socialism. Cause like you replace yeah. GOD with GOV and then they actually do play God and, but they're not very benevolent. Taleb makes this observation, which I never understood until I read the fatal conceit. He said for a, for a theory is a very dangerous thing to have. Mm-hmm. So under what, what was the cloak 
for the first central banks to inflate the money supply. Mm. They covered themselves in the cloak of Keynes's general theory. Right. And, and that's what Mises says as much as that, you know, his work wasn't even as consistent. Keynes's work wasn't even as consistent as the monetary cranks that had been dismissed long before Keynes. Mm. And so that is the arrogance of central planning is that, well, we have a theory we have. This is the killer word. We have a model mm. and a model in computer. We know a lot about modeling theory in computer science, the theory of optimization, the theory of machine learning. And we know that every model has a blind spot. And again, long-term capital management shows that. You hit the blind spot of the model, boom, spectacular explosion. So this is the beautiful thing is that, again, it's a more physics NB. Because the achievements of science and technology are so great, it is so easy and seductive to say, I am the supreme leader. I know how everybody should run their lives better than they do because I am in possession of so much data and so much science. Right. But this again, completely neglects dispersed and received knowledge, number mm -hmm. one. And of course, this is economic calculation problem. You were going something really interesting though, and it, it's the, I think the effect of psychoactive drugs on animals. I like yeah. to leave the, the ground a little bit in each of my articles. And this is where, where it was. And, and what I, here, here's the model I wanna give everybody. If economic calculation is a fundamental in human action. And if economic calculation requires a common denominator, and if money is that common denominator, by changing the value of money, you are imposing blinders on the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And that in a nutshell is Austrian business cycle theory is that you are causing the entrepreneurs to misjudge the value of assets, the value of capital, the preferences of the, the urgency of the consumers, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what happens when your money is appreciating value. Well, the consumers just buy. And so mm -hmm. you're creating false demand without looking at this unintended side effect of, hey, the amount, I think Jeff Booth goes into this, the amount of debt that is required to finance a fixed amount of growth, we just need more and more debt to, yes, to finance right. growth. And so think of economic, think of money as one of the lenses through which we do economic calculation. Yes. So what is happening? So the distortion of money is like wearing, well, it could be like taking psychedelic drugs. It could be like wearing really thick Coke bottle glasses through yeah. which you cannot see and judge the world properly. Right. And so this got me thinking about, well, about Bitcoin as a commonest denominator, mm -hmm. right? So, so if we can remove one of the variables that causes this distorting effect in economic calculation, if the denominator now, so, so Mises only talks about medium, he says, we need a market, we need a medium of exchange. He doesn't talk about store of value. He doesn't talk about unit of account. Mm -hmm. And if this medium of exchange, because the, the property of moneyness, at least if you listen to Selgin, is this, whom I have any number of disagreements with, but I think he makes a good point that moneyness is about demand, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's why Mises only said medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. So what if the medium of exchange also becomes a very reliable and regular barometer through this process of stock to flow? Now we can see the world with an unprecedented kind of clarity. And mm -hmm. you know what I think about is that as the money supply inflates or deflates, doesn't matter, as the money supply changes, it is like you have all the economic actors trying to build a building together with slightly different definitions of a meter. Mm -hmm. Just imagine that. Imagine if, if the construction workers, the architects, and the suppliers mm -hmm. all had slightly different definitions of a meter. The, the, anything you know more than some small number of stories would collapse. You would never be able to build right. a skyscraper. And so this got me thinking, you know, and this again goes back to this, this interrelatedness of we have consumers 
consumer goods, we have higher order goods, and this crystal of the structure mm -hmm. is able to grow, but can only grow if there are common units. And this is what mm -hmm. Mises just brilliantly says is that economic calculation requires a common denominator, but can there be a most common denominator? Mm -hmm. Certainly, certainly, you know, as Bitcoin stabilizes and let's say it starts to approach gold's market mm -hmm. capitalization. And I think that, I mean, this is again, the theory, nobody knows how any of it's going to yeah. play out that, that then the Bitcoin price kind of starts to stabilize or becomes even more regular. What does that mean for economic calculation? We now have an unprecedented, it, it is as if, it is as if, suppose now the economy is guided by a bunch of people with one eye or with Vaseline smeared all over the lenses. Mm. What if we gave each of the individuals for economic calculation 2020 vision, right? right? Now we can never remove uncertainty and uneasiness, but by fixing the denominator, by creating a more common denominator for economic calculation, the structures that we can project into the yeah. future become larger and bigger and greater. And yeah. that's where I got into the effect of psychoactive drugs on animals. And I hope we'll be able to show this uh, at yeah. least on, on YouTube. There's a, y'all can Google this. And it, I think if you, if you Google like spiders, marijuana or spiders, <laughs> cocaine, there, there's a study actually by NASA and it's just so incredibly interesting and they give spiders different drugs. I mean, it's absurd that anybody even thought <laughs> maybe, maybe fiat economy did bring us some good things because this sounds like a fiat thing that some professor at Harvard was like, well, what can I do? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give psychedelic drugs to spiders. In any case, it is really mind blowing because here you have the simple system of spider web, which we all know what it looks like. We all know what healthy spiders produce. But boy, the effects of ephedra and marijuana, you mm. can visualize the distortions that they are projecting into the mind. And, and this is where I went with, if, if Cadillacy, if the market, if civilization, the extended order, that's the word I'm looking for, is this process that we create together through the process of economic calculation. What, first of all, how ridiculous do we look? <laughs> you know, like, like how bad, how silly does our web look? Like you right. put spiders on ephedra, you, you put them on cocaine, you put them on marijuana. I'm not advocating use of any of these drugs, yeah. if anything, the opposite. You can see the effect on the web. Yes. And so the extended order that we generate together is in some sense distorted in proportion to, to the psychedelic effects of just, you know, making the denominator economic calculation totally elastic. Right. And elastic in one direction at that. Yeah. So that was, thank you. Thank you for bringing it. I feel like this is a really important and visceral. Some people were already commenting on that <laughs> Twitter. I was like, I know I'm leaving the ground and I'm going to get flack for this one. No, it's animals great. on psychoactive drugs. But but somebody was like, hey, no, this drive it home for me. So yeah, run, run with that. Yeah, it's a great visualization. We'll try to get in the video here and I'll just read a quick excerpt about it. You write, the distortionary effects of fiat currency remind us of the effective psychoactive drugs on animals, just as naval, uh, uh, naval travel blossomed from the invention of steel and air travel blossomed from the invention of aluminum, what new economic structures might be possible if the doors of monetary perception were cleansed. And then you go on to show this in figure D, the effect of intoxicating drugs on spider webs. And you know, when they're sober, spider web looks great. And then you go through these different substances like marijuana, benzedrine, caffeine, and chloral hydrate. And by the time you get to chloral hydrate, it is definitely not a web anymore. It is just some piece of nonsense. And, you know, what I would say here is that, okay, what are we doing in the marketplace? We are fighting back entropy effectively, right? We're trying to push back uncertainty to accumulate capital as a buffer between 
us in an uncertain future effectively. Yeah. The more entropy we can get out of the money, right? The more, the more certainty we can have in the money, the more predictability we can have in the money, the greater clarity of price signals we will have. The higher fidelity those price signals will be to the wishes of consumers um, versus the wishes of, of policymakers. So in that way, this is why Bitcoin has been analogized to like the metric system of money or the metric system of economic calculation, perhaps. Right. Um, right. What I got inspired by, and I hope people will, that, that one particular pack, passage on psychoactive drugs for animals is kind of like the, you know, the, the, I was, I was really having fun, but, but I think it's a great, it's a great metaphor. That's kind of the, I leave the ground the most, the rest of the article tries to be, you know, very, very grounded and factual, but mm-hmm. what, what really gets me excited is the same way that we can build taller buildings with the mexture system and with superior materials, what economic structures await are, are nascent in human cooperation that we cannot discover because we cannot see clearly under the effects of the currency. And you know, this brings me to a really important distinction between humans and animals. Not only do humans have goals and the humans take action. I fundamentally believe that lower time preference and civilization are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. sure you've talked about a great length, how, how money lifts us out of the present yeah. and allows us to think about the future. And so, you know, it's great. When you hear Michael Saylor talk, he's like, hey, you know, here's how I'm going to fund my initiatives for the future. I'm going to endow them with a certain mm-hmm. amount of Bitcoin, and that's going to be good. You know, this is how I project my economic energy into the future. Mm-hmm. And so what has me so excited is that there are structures that are not governments. And this will take us to the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who I didn't talk about in the article. There are structures that are not governments, that are voluntary, that are higher order than the family, that will allow us to achieve things as human beings that we have never achieved before. And, and here's the beauty. When I take my Coke bottle glasses of fiat currency off, I can see a world, I can see a level of color, I can see a level of distinction that I've never seen before. And we can divide labor even finer than ever before. Right. And with the finer division of labor, with our greater economic calculation vision, we can generate more wealth and there is no limit. There is no limit to how much we can see clearer and further. Because you're like, I mean, I think there are limits on the physical world, right? And how happy man, Mises talks about this all the time. Sure. And it's why he claims that the categories of praxeology are eternal is that man's mind and the structure of man's environment are themselves eternal. Right. But anyway, that's the inspiring thing that, that uh, you know, I, w- I would love for, for all of us to think about is that I was just deliberately playing on Aldous Huxley there, you know, the cleansing the doors of monetary perception or said in a very Misesian way, what happens when economic calculation, it's never going to be perfect. It's always going to be fraught with uncertainty. Entrepreneurs mistake, make mistakes every day. That's why they're entrepreneurs. But what can we achieve? What higher order structures can we generate? I, I mean, isn't that such a tantalizing idea? And people are terrified, Robert. They're terrified of this idea because throughout history, information has been distributed unequally and governments always made the claim that, well, we have more information, right? That's the kind of descendancy of democracy from monarchy. And then Hoppe argues that because monarchy has ownership, it's going to be games actually better than democracy. But the, the argument for democracy and governments is, hey, we have more information. Democracy was we have, divi- sorry, monarchy was that we have divine rights. Democracy is that, well, we have more information, we're smart, we're government. But this is, the internet has now, democratize, if you will, information. Anybody, there's low quality and high quality information on the yeah. internet, can have access to super high quality information. So the argument, not, not even to touch dispersed knowledge, but central planners have superior knowledge has evaporated overnight. 
And the, the emergence, the growing, the maturation of humankind will be that, hey, we can have order without organizations. Mm-hmm. We can have without planned, centrally planned organizations. Right. No, it's, it's truly... I mean, it just points to the profundity of Bitcoin, at least the promise of it, I guess. And I'm, what's striking me here is that we have, you know, we've talked a lot about the difference between subjective ordinal valuation and cardinal objective prices. Yes. It's a, it, what's interesting here with gold is that it's almost like gold was valued at the highest echelon of collective value hierarchies as money, right? Gold was naturally selected through this catalactic process as money because of its relative objectivity or predictability to everything else, right? Had the highest stock to flow ratio, was the least, most counterfeit resistant money we've ever had. So therefore it was like, it gave us- Immutable, indestructible, all these things, Not, not industrial. It gave us an approximation of the certainty that Bitcoin now perfects. Yes. Yes. So it's like, we've really created something interesting here. Like the first, you know, it's still valued subjectively, but it's valued in, in theory, we think Bitcoin will outcompete gold because it's even more objective than gold is what, what I'm getting at. So it's like bridging the worlds of subjective and objective. Yes. And what I love about that. So I, I think about in chemistry and I started in chemistry before I got into computer science, we have this concept of the density of liquids. And if I have a beaker that is full of oil and then I pour in water, water is actually denser than most oils. So the water will fill up and eventually it will push the, the oil out of the container. And then if I, if I pour in uh, something denser, let's say mercury, that will push, push the water out. And so, so the idea here is that we now have new materials which, that are stronger and lighter. And this idea of perfect scarcity gives us a metric of measurement that we have never really had in the past. Mm -hmm. And we can now start to think about how coordination can happen through voluntary cooperation, in part because the denominator of economic calculation is is so much more precise. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just excellent, excellent work here. I want to, one last thing I wanted to hit on here that I thought was just really well described in your paper is the irreducibility of the market process. I mean, oh yeah. You know, we've kind of touched on this at the beginning of the episode, but like, there's just no other process that can do what the market is intended to do, other than the market. And it's like if we could, if people, you know, praxeology itself is just such a blind spot in all human thinking, like it's such a niche, but when you do the work and you come to see this market process is um, beyond substitute. If this were, if this lesson were embedded in general cognition or general consciousness, I feel like statism would just be over with. It's like the, the, the state cannot substitute itself for the market under any circumstances in any way whatsoever without creating deleterious outcomes. One last part I wanted to cover in your piece that I thought was excellent is this the idea of the irreducibility of the market process and I'll read an excerpt here you write we know from the theory of cellular automata that certain processes though well-defined and even simple in their construction are not only unpredictable they are irreducible 
The impossibility of the halting problem, in fact, arises from the fact that some programs cannot be shortcut. One has to simply run the programs and only then discover where they lead. I mean, that's, that's the market, right? Like you can't, you can't override the market process other, without creating, um, again, some negative externality. Yeah, there's that part really helped me to see what is irreducible about the market process in that there's a, he's a computer scientist named Stephen Wolfram. He, he's famously known for creating Mathematica and also very controversial, even scientifically his ideas. But he, so first of all, just like Boyd's, which we talked about earlier, you have a very simple rule system that generates very complex behavior. And a computer scientist and mathematician by the name of John Conway, he created this thing called the game of life. And it's a very, very extraordinarily simple set of rules. You divide the word into a grid. It's actually just a line to start with. So you really have a line. Some of the cells are alive and some of the cells are dead. And cells can die either from loneliness or they can die from overcrowding. So these are the two things that can kill you, very much like human life. And with these extraordinarily simple set of rules, each automaton, like the individuals acting in their self, selfish interest who kind of generate these, finex, these effects like the invisible hand, they have these very, very simple rules. And... They're, the rules have different classes. Some are very predictable. Some are totally unpredictable. And Wolfram theorizes that rule 110, it's a specific set of cellular automata rules, is irreducible, which is to say there's no way that I can st start at step zero and know what is going to happen at step 100 other than by simply executing the automaton. And this is the simultaneous determinism and uncertainty that we saw earlier with the memoration of starlings or that we see with Austrian economics. Does human behavior have very specific, fixed, even operatory determinants? Yes. Is there a way that we can know and guess what's coming next? No. The only way, this is what irreducibility means, that we can actually achieve the outcome is just to run it and find out. There's no shortcut. And this makes me think, I don't know, there's, there's a, I don't remember if I was able to express this in the article, but this is kind of like, if we think about why we value proof of work, it has nothing whatsoever to do with the electricity that's expended. There are all kinds of stupid ways that I can expend electricity. I can spend a mountain of electricity just taking the number two and multiplying by itself or taking the number 10 and multiplying it by itself. Why aren't those processes acceptable as proof of work? Because they are reducible. There is a shortcut for those processes. It's trivial in mathematics to, for instance, shortcut the process of multiplying 10 by itself. I can still use an army of aces. I can still have an army of electricity to produce that. So what is significant about the SHA-256 hash and the irreducibility of the problems that are used in proof of work is that nobody can substitute this work with a cheaper means. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is, I even went as far as to say, like, that is kind of an indication of why the labor theory of value is fallacious. It's not how much effort I can expend enormous effort. I don't know if anybody who's listening has dug a ditch before. It's hard work, it's backbreaking labor. I can dig a ditch every day, 10 feet down, and then I can fill it up. Mm -hmm. The net amount of work that I've produced is zero because through another process, somebody could shortcut that and just do nothing. Right. Yeah. So, proof of work is irreducible in that. I know that you have done the work for the simple reason that there's no other way known in cryptography for you to invert a shot to 56 hash or for you to do this proof of work by any cheaper means. And so the important thing here is that it's not the effort, it's not the electricity that's expended, it's the irreducibility of that effort. And 
In computation and cellular automata, there are theorized irreducible things, but in algori algorithmic information theory, we have proven irreducible strings. And I'll just give you a very, very quick example of that. So this is the work of Gregory Chaitin and others. And he shows that there are certain strings where the shortest program that could produce that string is literally the string itself. So there's no known algorithm by which I can generate that string. It's just, here it is, here's the string. And this is in some sense what Mises says about the market process. He's like, look, all I know is that you can't do this in socialism. I can't tell you what's going to happen in the market, but I know the elements that are required for its function and there's no substitute for this process. And so that's the irreducibility of the market process in some sense. I'm going to read one more excerpt here that you used to just sort of round that off. And you say that, uh, and again, this is in regards to the irreducibility of the market process. You say that analogously, the Austrian economists argue that the market is irreducible. There is no bureaucratic and or algorithmic shortcut that can discover market prices. So it's quite simple, honestly. It's like we, the market, economic calculation requires prices. Only the market can discover prices. <laughs> So if we want to create wealth and increase the standard of living in the world, then we need to let the market run freely. And there's a good example of the socialist trying to reduce that process. So we talked a little bit earlier about Oscar Longa and market mm -hmm. socialism, and this was kind of the, the economic calculation debate. And there's a great article by my Rothbard, it's long, it's technical, but man, is it good, where he goes through Hayek and Mises and what he calls Longa Learner Taylor, the Longa Learner Terror. Taylor theorem or model. And basically this was their model for, well, we don't have entrepreneurship. We don't really have a ton of private ownership, but we're going to try and discover the prices through a trial and error process, right? And this is where, again, this debate entered where Langa shortly before his death said, well, just give me the computer and then I'll solve Hayek's equations. But the key issue here, what Mises shows, the market process is irreducible in that one cannot play market. And this is a significant difference between any socialist manager and an entrepreneur is that the entrepreneurs risk their own destiny. They have skin in the game, but what is a socialist manager? I mean, they're, I'm, I'm here at my desk doing my job. And no matter how much I claim, and you can show this, so the Soviet Union had tremendous technology, data, and tremendous brain trust for their time. They were still unable to calculate economically. And so it, it is not just that the market process is emergent and unpredictable, it's that there's no known substitute. And that's, again, Mises' joke about, okay, would you substitute cyanide for water? Then don't try and substitute central planning for the market process. Love it. I think it's a great place to put a button on it. Anish, man, I have to thank you for writing this. Um, you know, this is a very complicated and ill-understood domain, but I think the piece you wrote here just makes it nice and digestible. So I hope it hope it's reach as far and wide. I hope it helps people to consider the possibilities that Austrian economics are accurate. Mm -hmm. And it's something I struggle with every day that the non empirical nature or the, mm -hmm. the, in some cases, the ways in which it defies falsifiability, you know, yeah. they, they really, they challenge your, your notions of science. But right. that is, and you know, the article ended up much longer than I, than I ever would have expected it to be. But the, the carrot is, it's a lot shorter. It's no substitute for human action, but it's a lot shorter than reading Mises and reading Hayek and reading Rothbard. And it was months and months and months of me really listening, 
translating those into metaphors that I could understand as a computer mm -hmm. scientist, and then trying to make that plain for others. And, you know, your question when we open up the podcast is like, you know, how do we debunk socialism once and for all? Mm -hmm. One way is we continue to make these ideas more palatable mm -hmm. and accessible to more people. And it is the task of everyone to understand what is the best procedure by which I can organize my economic affairs. Like, because mm -hmm. what's the difference between the quote unquote, your personal economy and the factors of your survival? How can I organize my economic affairs so that I'm maximizing my personal prosperity and the prosperity of those around us? And the debate will rage until people come to the realization or at least understand, appreciate the subtleties of Mises's argument that economic calculation is fundamental to action. And it's under central planning, it's not possible to perform economic calculation. And that results in the disasters that we've seen in history. Yeah, beautifully said. Uh, could you please let my audience know where they can go to find out more about you or your work? Yeah, sure thing. It's really simple. My Twitter handle is just A-K-A-R-V-E. And just A-K-A-R-V-E, that's my first initial last name, .com, is where the, the blog is hosted. And uh, happy to, to hear readers' thoughts and to see how palatable we can make the concepts of Austrian economics to the world. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again for your work and uh, appreciate you coming on. I had fun. Thank you, Robert.